All right. Yeah. I, I'm not, I would have never realized it would have been eight years till like four years from now. Um, but my wife is good at keeping track of things like that. And yesterday she said, yeah, that's tomorrow actually. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I just caused me to reflect some um, and just, yeah, I feel a lot of gratitude um, for the time I've been here um, thus far for the ways that that God has has worked, that God has used all of you to show me what it means um, to be a Christian and to be a part of the kingdom. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm just incredibly grateful um, for, for all of that and, and excited to see how God continues to work in us and through us as a people. So the, this morning, um, we're, we're in the middle of this That You May Know series, uh, covering the book of 1 John and... Uh, Eric asked me uh, last week, he said, so do you want to teach sometime? And I said, well, when do you have a wedding or something so that you don't have to do both things on a weekend? He said, next weekend. And I said, okay, great. Just sign me up for that. And then I started reading the passage. Oh, man. I should have asked for an easier week. Um, um, but I, I think God has great things for us this morning in here. So we're going to be in 1 John uh, chapter 2 verses 15 to the end of the chapter. Uh, If you want to open up in the Bible, it's page 1,118, um, and we're going to read it off of the screen. Oh, Travis changed it from black to white. I can see it now. Um, I'm still going to read it from here. Um, So let's let's read this this chunk of scripture this morning. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, The lust of their eyes and their boasting about what they have and do comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Messiah. Such a person is the Antichrist, denying the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. As for you... See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, eternal life. I am writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. As for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in Him. And now, dear children... Continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. So right, easy passage. It goes along exactly with everything we say at face value as a church. It starts with do not love the world or anything in the world, right? That's what we talk about all the time here. Hate all the people that aren't here. Um, So it doesn't... That's right. We, 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 we believe that God 
has called us to love the world, to care about all the people that surround us in our lives. I keep looking that way because my house is right over there, and I think about my neighbors and the kids that, that are in my neighborhood that God has called me to love. And, and it could be that we could use this passage in First John, do not love the world or anything in the world, to create like a holy circle that no one gets into, that we, that we create these circles and that we use it to create boundaries that hold out the world that hold out sin, that keep everything bad or wrong away from us. Um, and because then we're practicing not loving the world or anything of the world. We're, so, we're set apart and, and we, we need to keep ourselves safe. And when we do that, we can also not care what happens to the world, right? Because we're set apart and we're safe and we're going to get rescued and taken away from here. And so let's, let's use this scripture to do that. That's an approach to it. But I, I think when we go back to the beginning and look at the story of God, it says something different. Uh, in, the, in the very beginning, in Genesis 1, each day God creates this thing, and at the end of the day, God says, it was good. And on the last day, as, he, as he's finishing, it says, God looks at all that he has created, and he said that it was very good. Right? And we find in those early chapters that 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 humans are made in the image of God, and that, that creation is an expression of God's beauty and imagination and love for us. And so this can't be saying to hate all of that. Um, and so just to maybe put us in the right frame of mind this morning to talk about hating the world and the Antichrists, I thought we'd maybe look at some pictures first uh, of, of the beauty that God has made in humanity, and in creation. So we'll just sit and look at these for, for a few seconds. Travis will scroll through them and just thank God for the beauty that he has instilled in, in his creation. That's the one that's familiar to all of us. I, I love Kansas wheat fields and the beauty that's therein, in part because I grew up in the mountains uh, in Colorado, um, and I love that beauty too. Um, but everybody always talks about, oh, when you drive through Kansas, it's just flat and there's nothing there. Um, but those of us that live here, right, we all know the secret that there's this immense beauty, but you have to slow down enough to, to see it and to look at it. But the world is full of beauty. And so John must be saying something different when he says, don't love the world or anything in the world. And I think what John is trying to get at um, is that, that he's writing about kind of this, these systems and these powers that are at work in our world that seek to draw us away from God, that seek to numb our ability to see or hear from God. 
Um, right? There's political systems that do that. There's social systems that do that. And they, they work and they run and they try just as hard as they can to grab hold of our hearts and our minds and to pull us away from God. And I, I think John gives us a clue what he's talking about in verse 16. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful people, the lust of their eyes, and their boasting about what they have and do. So the, the world that he's talking about has to do with this, these selfish pursuits, the lusts of the world, these things that don't last, but this desire to, to get and build up myself um, is, is what John's talking about. And he's saying, don't give yourself to that. Don't love that. And so that, that helps us understand maybe where he's going with the world here. And then I think he dials it down a little bit more and he, he talks about a real specific way that this works in our lives, that the world tries to work. And that's, he, he goes into this, this idea of the Antichrists. He says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, but there are many Antichrists among you now. And uh, N.T. Wright writes about the Antichrists. He's a, he's a, a, a theologian. And, and he writes that, he talks about the Antichrists as the anti-Messiahs. Um, because maybe we get this picture of the Antichrist um, coming at the end to have this big battle with God and, you know, horns and pitchforks and such. Um, and that's not the picture John is going for here. He's talking about people who have been deceived and have become deceivers. Um, so the, the anti-Messiahs that John is talking about... Um, are those who try to make us believe that the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the world, is actually the things of God. And, and so th- these people, they're deceivers, they're liars, um, and, and they often, oftentimes, and this would have been especially true 2,000 years ago, are offering some sort of access to God that no one had before. And so they're trying to entice people. So if we go back 2,000 years and we think about the way um, the culture worked. If there was something happening, how did news travel? It, yes, exactly. It did not travel by this, right? You didn't just look up and like scroll through Twitter or Snapchat or, or like get a text message saying what amazing thing was happening in the next town and then you get in your car and run over and, and check it out. You would be sitting in your town and someone would come and travel from the next town over, and maybe they'd come through four towns already, and they would tell you the news that they had encountered in all those towns as they traveled. And so if someone comes to your town, and you're a follower of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and they come, well, slightly less than 2,000 years ago, and they come to your town, and they say, over there, in Haven, there's a man, and he is bringing sight to the blind. And the sick... When they touch him, they're healed. And the lame, those that can't walk, he straightens their legs and they can walk again. We think he might be Jesus returned. What do you do? There's no way to, like, fact check this. But then, what about the next week when another story comes about another person that's an inman and the same stories? And so John is writing to a culture that doesn't quite know what to believe as they have all these stories coming to them of these people claiming that they are the returned Christ, the Messiah. And, 
And so, you know, that's the way the world worked 2,000 years ago. Um, but we have the information superhighway now. Um, and so clearly the world does not still work that way. Um, we, we would never get caught up believing news that isn't true. So I, this picture, it's, it's uh, from Hurricane Irene, which hit southeastern United States in 2011. That's a shark in the water on a road because the storm surge from Hurricane Irene was so intense that sharks were able to swim into the city. And if you were escaping your house, you might get eaten by a shark. Bummer. And then this picture went viral because, I mean, it was a shark. Then 2012, Hurricane Sandy hits. And within hours, guess what picture went viral? This one showing the shark in downtown New York City or New Jersey and getting ready to eat all the people. And while it makes for an amazing movie, Sharks in New York City, it was just the same picture. And then we all know that, that a month ago we had all these great big storms. Um, and Hurricane Harvey, I was scrolling through Twitter, and a, a reporter from a, one of like the big four major news outlets he posted this picture, and he wasn't joking. And he's like, this is Houston right now. There's a shark in the water. And I, I was a little bit embarrassed for him, but I was also really excited to read all the replies. Um, right? Because for seven years, somebody's ability with Photoshop has been carried on as real news. And it's just going to get funnier five years from now when somebody does this again. Um, and uses this same picture, and people believe it again. So we have this same issue that the news spreads and no one's quite sure what to believe. That same problem exists in our culture today, right? We even have a name for it because it's so prevalent. We call it fake news, and you, uh, it's interesting if you look at it, right, because all of the different news places call each other fake news now, and and our politicians call all the different news sources fake news. And, like, how do you choose what to believe and how do you choose what to know the truth is? It's really hard because I can get on my phone and choose whatever truth I want to believe about lots of things. And so John is writing into this same idea that there are these anti-Messiahs who seek to deceive for their own power and their own privilege their own prophet. And, and it's the same today, right? I read a story just maybe two weeks ago about an 18-year-old. He was in an Eastern European country. And a year, year and a half ago, he was preparing to graduate from high school. And he was looking towards a job, that the same ones all his family uh, were involved in. And he was going to earn about 300 U.S. dollars a month. And he was going to do that for the next however long until he died but he was pretty good at computers, and so he realized that he could write news stories about U.S. politics especially and throw them on websites with catchy names and then get advertising 
and make more money. And so he decided to see if he, how well he could do with that. And so he surpassed $300 a month. He surpassed $600 a month. He surpassed $1,200 a month. He surpassed $12,000 a month. He was making $18,000 a month writing fake news. So for his own profit, for his own power, he shares all this stuff. And it leaves us in a place of not knowing what to believe and how to figure out what is true. And so, right, this is a a problem in our country, but it also is a problem for us in the church. Because when there's so many voices saying so many things, to seek their own profit and their own power, it's really hard to know how to move forward and how to live. But John has something to say to that. In verse 20, He says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. So this word anointing, I think, is really important. Um, It's an interesting word. Um, Its it's root is chrisma, which which even if you go back further, is the the same root as Christ. Anti-Messiah, the word Messiah, Christos, they share the same root word in the Greek language, anointed and anti-Messiah or anti-Christ. And so what John is saying, I think, is that when we live in the anointing we have as followers of Jesus, that we have everything we need to stand against the anti-Messiahs who seek to deceive and destroy. So John's calling out something really really important as he contrasts these two ideas of the anointed ones and the anti-messiahs. Because rather than approach the world with fear of who's trying to trick me, what's the real truth, how am I being deceived today, we can approach the world saying, I know as a follower of Jesus that I am instilled and given the Spirit to stand against any perversion of the gospel anything that tries to deceive me or us. Which leads us to the question of how how do we learn to live as the anointed ones? And so I think the solution to this is it's learning to surrender to the Trinity, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit of God. It's learning to live a life of surrender. And and that happens in, in three ways. Um, the first one is that, the first way we, we respond is that we take verse 20 seriously and that we, we let ourselves be anointed with the Holy Spirit. This means learning to listen to the Spirit, letting the Spirit work through us, um, learning to, to hear the voice of the Spirit over the voice of all the lies um, that are out there. And, and I don't know what that looks like for every one of you. But, but I know what happens that we learn to listen to the Spirit. Um, a few years ago, we have a, a, something we do in the youth ministry called XP, and we, we work hard together to follow Jesus. Um, and we go visit churches that worship in really different ways, which leads to cool experiences because when you're in a new place and you don't know the people, you just kind of are open to experiencing it. And so we visited African-American churches. We visited a great big Greek Orthodox church down in Wichita. We even visited little tiny farm churches where our group is as big as the, as the church almost. We visited a, a mega church in Wichita that had like 
a 40-foot-long airplane hung from the ceiling. I don't remember what they talked about, but the airplane was really cool. Um, um, yeah, really cool. Um, and, and we visited charismatic churches. And at one of those churches one time, we went in, and a lot of times we all go in as a group and we sit together and we experience the service. But at this particular place, we decided to all go in separately and sit by ourselves. Um, and just experience, we were going to be in this room for a couple of hours, just worshiping and praying and, and experiencing what God was doing in this space. And, and so being a good leader, as everybody went and found their seats, I made sure where I knew where all the students were so I could keep track of them while we were there. Um, if they were out and gone for a while, I could go check and make sure they were okay. And so um, I'm sitting, and I look over, and one of our students is just, they're on the other side of the room, but right here. And then I kind of spend some time praying and worshiping, and then I look over, and I'm like, huh, they're gone. I wonder what happened to them. They were there. And I lean forward, and the student is kneeling on the floor with someone I've never met before. And I'm like, huh, I wonder what's going on. It's probably okay. Keep praying. Keep worshiping. And afterwards, the student shares, well, I went in and I sat down. And then this woman came in and sat at the other end of the row we were in, and there was nobody in between us. And, uh, and she was kind of glowing. And so I knew that meant I should probably go pray for her. And I said, well, yeah, that's when people glow, right? <laughs> Keep in mind, this student is anointed with the Spirit. They're listening for what God's calling them to do, to work against the lies and to seek the truth and what it means to live that out. So she said, so I scooted down to her and I said, can I pray for you? And the woman just starts crying, sobbing. And so she starts to pray over her. And they end up kneeling on this, the floor in this place that we've never been before. Um, with this person she's never seen before and never met before. And just praying over this woman who came to this place because she needed to hear from God. And this student was able to to be the, the hands and the voice of God um, for a few minutes. So I can't tell you that that's exactly what it looks like for you to be anointed with the Spirit. But I know that's what it is to be anointed with the Spirit. And so that's the first thing of how we respond, is that we allow ourselves to be anointed with the Spirit, to move as the Spirit moves in the ways and places that the Spirit moves. The second thing, the second way we surrender is that we learn to see Father God through Jesus the Son. In verse 24, John connects the Father and the Son. It happens in Hebrews. It happens in Colossians. Jesus talks about Him, that He is the image of, of God. And so this is important to learning to, 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 to not fall prey to the love of the world or the lies of anti-Messiahs. Because we have to have a right picture of God, and a right picture of God looks like Jesus. So if my picture of God says God is angry at me, and he's out to get me, and if I do anything wrong, he might destroy me, I'm going to start creating a circle that keeps me safe from all that. And if my picture of God says he's so far away, he doesn't even really care what's happening, my picture of God is going to assume that God doesn't really care or see me. But when I look at Jesus, I see that God cares, that God comes near, that he came to earth to be with us. And so when I learn to see 
God the Father through Jesus the Son. It gives me confidence and courage um, to go into the world and to be good news. The last thing that we do um, to counteract these systems, these broken systems of our world and, and the work of the anti-Messiahs is that we learn the, the last three words of verse 27. It says, remain in Him. It could also be translated, abide in Him. We learn to abide with Jesus. And the word abide, it comes from the Greek root word meno. And if you're unclear where you are this morning, you're sitting in a Mennonite church, right? It's like our word. Um, so we better be good at it. And that, that's totally a lie. That's not where our name comes from. It's like a guy that's been dead for 500 years, Menno Simons. But it still holds. I think we should be people of Menno who have learned to abide with Jesus. And so what does it mean to abide with Jesus? Because when we learn to abide, we are uniquely positioned to live in the way of the Messiah, to live as anointed people who have this image of the Father that looks like Jesus. And so I think there's two ways that we can learn this act of surrender, of abiding. And the first one is to be purposefully still. So it means like, I'll miss you. Like putting it down and leaving it alone. Letting it not make noise. Turn off the TV. Turn off whatever is making all the noise in your life. If you're a parent or a grandparent who has kids in your house a lot, it's harder than that, right? So it might mean you need to get up early. It might need, mean you need to leave the house sometimes. It used to work really great in my house to get up early um, and just spend some nice time in quiet. Um, but we have this, this human right here um, who's decided that anytime anyone makes noise in our house after like 5 a.m., it's probably because they're sneaking cupcakes and having a party, and so they need to get up and wake everyone else up too. It's awesome. Um, but we have to find ways to be purposefully still and, and get away and shut down all the noise that's in our lives. Um, and then the second way I think we learn this surrender of abiding with Jesus is to be patiently persistent. And that's because we live in a world that works on efficiency, Right? We always want to find the most efficient way to do anything. During my sabbatical, I spent some time building fences for someone. And my whole goal was how fast can I build these fences while still doing it well. But like, I wanted to like, ooh, if I do this, if I bring this tool, it'll go, I bet I can get it done in 10 minutes, 10 less minutes. Um, God doesn't work on a scale of efficiency, right? The fastest point from Egypt to the promised land when he rescued the Israelites was not a 40-year walk. We could all walk it in a lot less time. We could all crawl it in a lot less time than 40 years. But over those 40 years, God was unlocking things in his people's hearts. They were learning what it meant to follow him, to trust him, and to surrender themselves to him. And so we have to be patiently persistent in abiding because God is doing a long work in us. Not a, not a short work. It's a work of our lifetime. And so we have to be persistent over and over and over. And as, as we do this, I think it leads us to places where, where we hear, do not love the world. And we say, of course I'm not going to love the systems of the world. Because they have nothing for me. Because everything I have I find in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But neither am I going to be afraid of the world. I'm not going to be afraid of the anti-Messiahs because they have nothing for me. 
And so I'm going to stand in the way of Jesus, and I'm going to live the life he calls me to, and I'm going to listen to the Spirit, and I'm going to live in power out of that place. Let's pray. God, as we learn what it means to surrender to a life lived in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, God, I pray that you would make us people of wisdom, people of passion, and people of courage for your kingdom. God, that we would, that we would have hearts that overflow with your love and goodness. God, and that we, would, that we would then learn as we sit with you, as we abide with you, um, to let that be used by you in the places where, where, where we do life. Amen, we pray. Amen.